Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. that many of us will be singing this weekend on the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany, Songs of Thankfulness and Praise. The gospel reading for that coming Sunday, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you, and he's talking a lot about the law. Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time to look forward to Sunday morning to the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany, according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome. Good to be here, Todd. Of course, not all listening to us are familiar with the two different lectionaries. There's a three-year that we're walking through in this series with you. Then there's also the historical lectionary, which we usually refer to as the one-year lectionary. And you say that this is where the two, depending on which congregation is using either one, this is where the two kind of diverge the most. Why? Definitely. I myself at the International Center, I'm using the one-year lectionary, so it's been wonderful to kind of get to know the three-year lectionary better. But this year in particular, you see that we line up well with the collect. So the collect today is the traditional collect for Septuagesima, the first of those three Sundays that precede Lent, or really maybe better to say in the one-year lectionary, the beginning of a 70-week, a 70-day in parallel to the 70 years in exile period of time in which Lent is also nested. And this year it works out well, but in other years it won't because here the lecturers diverge not only in their readings, but also in the way they're handled. So the season of Epiphany is shortened traditionally in order that we would get to Easter after our 70-day period beginning with Septuagesima. But in the three-year lectionary, there's always going to be at least three extra Sundays, but they also count them out to the end and then have Transfiguration as the last Sunday. So there's a lot of potential for being off. And even the collect, which up until now has always been kind of the thing that united the two lectionaries, there's a chance that those will also be off. This year, it won't work out that way as it just happens to be. So are they completely divergent or are there any similarities in the three-year lectionary with one? So I think many have observed that, especially the way we have it presently, where transfiguration is the last day that we have before we go 
into whatever's next after Epiphany, we have a period of teaching that Jesus gives then in the three Sundays in the one-year lectionary. So he tells a couple parables, and then the final teaching before Ash Wednesday is it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer, die, and on the third day rise again, which definitely gets us thinking toward Holy Week. We have something kind of similar in years A and C of the three-year lectionary in that we have a long period of Jesus teaching. Now, the difference is it's not the parables of Jesus or even his foretelling of his death. It's particularly the teachings that we have on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. The year of Mark doesn't have that at all because it has a focus on Jesus' healing. There is no teaching on the passion that will come in the three-year lecturing during Lent. So we see a shift kind of Lent as 40 days of Christ's suffering and death being our focus, rather than spiritual warfare as it was. But I think that period of teaching is central. Now, I will say there's there's maybe another disconnect that comes out here, and that is with, with the understanding of Epiphany as a season of mission, a season of the Gentile focus. And that is definitely being seen here in Matthew's gospel, which is really not trying to yet make the point that Jesus is the savior of the Gentiles, but much more in this portion to point out how Jesus is the new and greater Moses, that he is the one who is fulfilling all of the law and the prophets, as we heard last week, the one who is teaching and instructing in a similar way uh, to how the Psalms have done it in their wisdom literature, to how the Torah does it in all of the commandments that Moses gave or that the Lord gave by Moses, and yet a focus on how these, if we take them according to the Pharisees, are going to be inadequate. And that in particular is going to come out today. What kind of themes connect all of the elements together that we should be looking for? Sure. So in the gospel, we're going to hear Jesus uh, repeat this multiple times. You've heard it said something from the scriptures usually, or perhaps maybe a rabbinical tradition, but he's going to say, but I tell you something more drastic. The push here is is to the internal or to the metaphorical or to the spiritual, you might say, of all the commandments. In other words, what is our heart and our mind doing or sinning or keeping the commandment rather than just our hands and our paperwork, so to speak, doing what is required. That is to say, and this is maybe more the way the Lutherans would say it, the Lord is preaching the law in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the sense in which Lutherans mean spiritual. We don't mean to spiritualize away so that we're no longer on earth caring about the realities of our life, but rather to say when we're looking at the law's work, it is not only going to speak to what our hands do and what can be kind of tallied up in terms of right and wrong actions, but we're going to care also about the heart, the disposition, the words that we say, all of it together. And and finally, we're going to want to push ourselves even back to the 10th commandment, as well as the first commandment, what they have in common is it doesn't have to be an action at all. It can be, what is your disposition? Are you trusting the Lord for all things, or are you seeking your own contentment by what you do or by what happens to you rather than in him altogether? So we're going to see that kind of fleshly versus spiritual people notion come up a number of places. And we're going to be looking at the character of the law, that it begins and it's centered in those first three commandments, 
out of which the works for our neighbor and our attitudes toward our neighbor flow. So again, think of the Ten Commandments on the two tables. The first three have to do with God. The last seven have to do with our neighbor. And so then we're going to be trying to drive ourselves to see that even in the the actions and the commandments that pertain to our neighbor, we're not going to be able to to keep them in any sense unless the first three toward God are addressed as well. The intro, it is Psalm 98. How does it read? The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Psalm 98 was the intro also for Christmas, classically. So it's interesting that we return to this psalm. But here we don't start with the new song, but we jump right in to talk about the Lord's salvation in the presence and the sight of the nations. This is definitely a focus on the Gentile mission, a return to kind of the main theme of epiphany in a kind of general way. And we'll see this through a number of the propers today that I think this is maybe the first Sunday we've seen where the propers are very seasonal, the parts that are sung in between the readings. But those chief propers, the pericopes, the Old Testament, the epistle and the gospel reading, they have more of a different theme that's not necessarily going to intersect so well with say the introit or the collect. Maybe if we're looking for uh, trying to find a point of connection here, it would be in this righteousness of God. Certainly, as we look at the way the Lord is speaking about murder and how our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's something to say about justice, about about what is right in God's eyes, what commandments he has that we ought to follow, Um, the law in all of its instructive capacity. Uh, But this is very interesting because this psalm, when it uses the word righteousness, is not so much concerned with our actions or with God coming to do righteousness by wiping out the sinners. But this is much more the way righteousness is more commonly used in the scriptures, which is God's saving action. So we talk about retributive righteousness. This is, you know, a, a righteous judge comes and punishes those who have done something wrong. It would be righteous to punish them. And sometimes the scriptures uses the word righteousness in that way. But more often it uses the righteousness is the Lord's characteristic by which he saves us. This is, of course, most key in Christ Jesus, who, as we say, exchanges his perfect righteousness, his perfect keeping of all God's commandments in heart and mouth and deed for our unrighteousness. So that Paul can even write that he justifies the ungodly. That's that saving righteousness of God. What is the collect and what would you say about it? The collect prays like this, O Lord, graciously hear the prayers of your people, that we who justly suffer the consequence of our sin may mercifully be delivered by your goodness to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, as I mentioned in the intro, the traditional collect for Septuagesima, this kind of shift in the church here towards a theme of exile in commemoration of kind of the 70 years of exile in Babylon 
we see in the Old Testament. And it fits quite well with that, a focus on repentance and particularly that we bear some sort of consequence for our sin. We will see that actually in the Old Testament a little bit when we hear about this choice that Moses puts before them of life and death. But it's not so much the focus of the gospel, which has a little bit of consequence, but is much more focused on our hearts considering rightly our actions and our deeds and our thoughts so that we would not deceive ourselves into thinking we have kept God's law perfectly when we've only accomplished the outward action. In fact, I think the point that Jesus is making in the gospel is much more, you may not suffer necessarily the consequences of the sins that are done in the heart and done with the mouth. Usually only murderers who actually commit the deed go to jail, and people who have thought about murdering somebody or even premeditated it but never gone through with it, they are rarely captured or executed or any of that. But the Lord, of course, does see to the heart. And this is praying not for consequences that are eternal. Those are taken care of by Christ Jesus in his death. We're looking particularly for what we might face in this world, again, like the children of Israel faced when they were exiled in Babylon. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. The Old Testament reading is next from Deuteronomy 30, beginning at verse 15. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Making Disciples for Life. Across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring, Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org schools. Old Theology, New Technology, you're listening to Issues Etc. The Word of God, Daily Worship, Lutheran Hymnody and Catechesis, Instruction in Phonics, Traditional Math, Literature, Grammar, History, Latin and Strings. It's all part of our daily life here at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. St. Paul is seeking teaching candidates for the 2023-24 school year. Learn more at school at stpaulhamel.org. Consider joining the faithful faculty at the only classical Lutheran school in Greater St. Louis. School at stpaulhamill.org Greetings, fellow Lutherans. Ad Crucem has an amazing number of new products on the website. Come and see our new Sunday School or Confirmation medallions featuring the six chief parts and Luther's seal. Browse our stunning incense burners and their engraved solid wood boxes. Purchase Kathy and Kelly's beautiful new jewellery for your beloved for Valentine's Day or order some personalised stickers for your church or school. 
visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, or just decrees, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This comes from the end of Deuteronomy. It's the final, I believe, sermon that Moses gives. And again, we talked about Moses and his sermons in Deuteronomy just a little bit back in Advent, because when John the Baptist begins preaching, begins giving his ministry, and when Christ then in the same place begins his ministry as well and is baptized and goes on to the Gentile territory, this is all reminiscent of Moses. And the timing of this is right before the children of Israel finally do enter into the promised land. Uh, Moses, of course, who's giving these speeches, does not enter the promised land because of his sin of smacking the rock and showing off before the people. So the Lord takes his life, although he allows him on the mountain to see the promised land that they're about to take possession of. And the theme is is strong. It's a warning. In fact, Moses makes him memorize a song which is reference to the Easter Vigil, a song that they would know of the warnings, mostly of how God will not give them the blessings if they depart from his word and from his commands, which is a very strange song, you would think. It's not a very cheerful one, but of course, Moses is a prophet, and he sees already how the children of Israel have grumbled all these years through the wilderness, and so how they also are very likely, in fact, very tempted to fail in their land as well. In this, as well as in our gospel reading, I'm reminded of what Peter says in Acts 15 at the great council, where, as you know, Peter had not always been very resolute on this matter of the law and the gospel, particularly when it pertained to Gentiles entering into the Christian church. But after the Lord's vision, after he was corrected by God himself, 
there at that council, he really did speak so well as a leader of the church to say, look, we Jews have been striving and trying to keep God's commandments to be holy according to the law of Moses for all of these generations. We've never been able to do it. How in the world are we going to put that burden on them also, right? We see that we are going to be saved by faith in Christ Jesus just as they are. So uh, we're back before that has happened now, the giving of it by Moses and the reminding of it by Moses with so much of the Old Testament behind us to see the failures of the children of Israel, but also so much of it lying ahead. As Paul says a number of times in the New Testament, these things were written for our instruction on whom the end of the age has also come. You wanted to say something about decision theology with respect to this Old Testament reading. Yeah, and maybe another thing too, this text is used almost exclusively these days as a pro-life statement. So choose life that you might live has become kind of a a slogan for the anti-abortion movement, which is a fine movement. Frankly, it would be in accord with the Torah and with all of these commands that Moses is encouraging his people to follow, to keep that all the temporal blessings would come with it. But as you see from our context here, it really has nothing to do with that in particular. And this choosing of life is much broader. It's a choosing of a way of life, which is outlined by God's commandments, which is perfect and flawless and is the kind of world I think all of us want to live in when it pertains to the actions of others. But so rarely are we ourselves following it. And obviously we look around us and we see a world where people do break all of the Ten Commandments of God, as well as all sorts of other perversions and all these things. So, yes, Moses does set choice before them in a very similar way to how Joshua famously will say, choose this day whom you will serve. And sometimes we're confused on that, on whether this is saying that we ought to make a decision to believe in Jesus Christ. This is certainly a prevalent understanding of salvation in America, that it's kind of God has put his offer out there. We'll see if there are any takers, but that's up to you, right? We have to make a decision to believe in Jesus Christ. Lutherans look at the rest of the scriptures and say that's impossible. Dead men don't make any decisions, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians says. But this is a case where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, to people who had seen the great works of God, to people who had, in fact, survived through the wilderness. They're not the people who left Egypt, but they're the next generation that believed the words that were told to them. And therefore, he's speaking, as we would say it, to Christians in our day. He's speaking to those who are justified, who know the Lord, who are fearers of God. And so then this choice is about sanctification. So we speak about our life in Christ in this way, that he has declared us righteous in Christ Jesus, that by faith we are saved, and out of this faith then flows love and every good work. The keeping of God's commandments flows from it. The keeping of God's commandments does not happen apart from faith or before faith, but only as a fruit that grows out of it. 
And there's no issue in keeping this distinction clear. It's really the concern of St. Paul in particular, but also the rest of the apostles in the New Testament, that we not think that we are saving ourselves by our works. So that's a healthy distinction. At the same time, they can't be separated. And we see that also in what even what Moses says here in the Old Testament, right? The loving of the Lord your God, the keeping the heart, the having a disposition toward him, all of this goes before the keeping of his ways and his statutes and his rules. So justification is what gives birth to and what enlivens sanctification. I think we also ought to recognize that the word faith includes also loyalty. We consider people faithful not just if they believe that God exists, not just if they believe that he has given a promise that they trust in. That would be the nature of saving faith, which in fact is created by the word and promise of God, but also that a faithful person is trustworthy and loyal to the one that they trust in, the one that they serve. There's nothing wrong with us as Christians to talk about this loyalty. That's what Joshua is saying, for example, when he says, choose for this day who you are going to serve. So Paul says the same thing, right? To Timothy, make the good confession, stand firm, fight the good fight, all of these statements. This is not an issue for us as long as we always just keep it as a consequence of that fiduciary relationship that's created by the Holy Spirit, the saving faith, which is by no means our choice, but it's a rescue that comes by the word of God, by the forgiveness of sins, by the Holy Spirit's action that God rescues us, in which case we also daily repent of our sins, strive and desire to be faithful to him in everything we do, to be entirely staunch and loyal and true to our God. But in this, of course, we'll always have room for forgiveness and need for it. The psalm for the coming Sunday is the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Read that for us. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your just and righteous decrees. I will keep your statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. So this is the first chunk, the first uh, section, Aleph, it's labeled in Hebrew, of Psalm 119. We had the second section last week, so we're kind of out of order, unlike the gospel and the epistle that are continuing. This passage, though, I think has much of what we just said, right? So it has the, the focus on keeping the Lord's testimonies, his word, which is an expansive term. It doesn't just refer to his commandments or his kind of rules, do these things, but it also includes his gospel, his promises, his saving things. We seek that with our whole heart, right? And out of this heart disposed to the words and promises of God comes the desire to walk in his ways, to do no wrong thing against his commandments, to keep his precepts, to be diligent about them, in fact, to be steadfast, to be resolute, to be loyal to the Lord in everything that we do. And, and with that then comes the blessing. So we didn't talk much about that, but this is what Moses lays out when he kind of lays out these two ways of death and life, evil and good. He is laying out the truth as we hear it in the Ten Commandments in the small catechism, right? That God promises grace and every blessing here on earth, 
for those who love him and keep his commandments. He promises that it will go well with you and you will live long on the earth. And this was a very particular promise to the Israelites, but it still is obviously true and apparently true, even just by experience, that a life in which people are not killing each other is a much happier life, a life in which people are trustworthy, they don't backbite. Of course, it's more pleasant. So all of this goes with it. I think it's uh, probably above all essential that we see this last part. If we want to take this first chunk of Psalm 119 as indicative of the whole psalm, consider that the last statement is a promise, a vow, I'll keep your statutes, Lord, but don't you forsake me. Luther taught pastors to pray this as the sacristy prayer, uh, as their preparation before uh, worship services. I still pray this often, and if we're rushed for time, shame on us if we didn't prepare ahead of time, I usually just reduce it to the very last line where Luther says, use me as an instrument in your service, Lord, only do not thou forsake me, for if I'm left to myself, I'll just surely bring it all to destruction. Amen. It's a hasty little prayer and maybe a strange thing to say, but necessary for us. That we don't for a moment think that, well, the justification part is the easy part. After all, God does it all. So I really ought to just focus on moving on to the sanctification part. No, there's no moving beyond Christ Jesus ever. And the point is not now that you're a Christian, God's got some rules for you to follow. That'll take your time. So just devote everything to that. And uh, you don't need Jesus anymore. You just need to get to work. False. It is the Lord and his mercies that bring forth the fruit in our lives. It's the faithful life of a son that leads us to labor delightfully instead of being a slave who must be beaten, who must be uh, pushed around, who must be uh, coerced by this law all the time. We are looking forward to Sunday morning. According to the three-year lectionary, the epistle for this coming Sunday, the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany, is up next, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. Several issues, etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. One of the most difficult decisions that a spouse has to make is the decision to put their beloved husband or wife into a long-term care facility as a result of mental illness. In the February issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Rev. Michael Casting tells the story of how he cared for his wife during her struggle with Alzheimer's and how he came to grips with this decision. To find out more, you can read his article in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. 
Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Sacramental. Historical. Liturgical. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is it hard? Yes. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it a blessing from God for you and those you will serve without question? Dr. Lawrence Rast, President of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The pastoral ministry is all of these things, and that's why Concordia Theological Seminary exists to form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Men from all over the world with a variety of unique backgrounds come to our campus to receive faithful training that will equip them for the challenging but blessed work of serving as pastors in Christ's church. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Christ-Centered Worship Confessional Theology Lutheran Community, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkins. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It's our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning. The epistle reading for this coming Sunday is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9. How does that read? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but only as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, then another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So here is Paul's shift in 1 Corinthians to kind of the rebuke of the congregation. And as we know, he goes on for an awful lot of rebuke with this congregation. And he starts off by setting up kind of this, I guess, shaming of them to say, you guys are children, you're infants. And I thought you were supposed to be grown up by now. Maybe we should say, first of all, there isn't any shame in being an infant or a child in Christ. In fact, John is is very fond of calling us the children of God, little children, let us love in truth and, and deed, etc. And Paul says the same thing, so does uh, the writer to the Hebrews, that we begin with milk, and to say the same thing is not difficult for me to do. And yet at the same time, there's an expectation that there will be growth in the faith and growth then in the life as a result. Paul makes this point because the Corinthians of all congregations are sophomoric, right? It's one thing to be a child and to have a lot to learn. It's another thing to be the arrogant toddler running around insisting that you know it all. I'm going to do it all myself and actually to think you're smarter than everybody. That's cute when they're three. It becomes quite annoying when they're 17 
and if you were like that as an adult, insisting that you're in charge of everything and you, and you know better than everybody when it's obvious you don't, that's a serious problem. That's immaturity. Anybody can grow up, but to be mature is the goal. So Paul's using that grand image as a parallel to their faith and their life together as Christians. And so he says, you're still of the flesh and you're behaving like your flesh is in charge and as if the Holy Spirit and your regenerate nature are not in charge. So what's the first issue then that Paul's going to have to deal with in his congregation? It's this factionalism. He's going to come back to factions as maybe a necessary thing, but this sort of faction where it's devoted around particular people, gurus, you might say, or pastors as a cult of personality, there is no room for this in the Christian church. What he says is all of us are serving a common Lord. If you're a preacher, you're serving the same Lord. If you're a preacher, in any capacity, you have the same common purpose. And even if your actions or your gifts or your particular area of work are different, nevertheless, the point is the same. And in fact, then he draws out the most important thing to realize is maybe we should say this is exactly the way the scriptures are too. Yes, Paul wrote his letters and Peter wrote his letters and Moses had his books, but we dare to assert because of who was really behind it that God is the author of all scripture. All scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it's useful for all these things. It's powerful to accomplish it. So in the same way it is with any true ministry in the church, if you build it on a particular man, on a particular pastor, you will be disappointed, and there won't be any growth there. It'll only be built on this world and on this flesh. But through preachers as, notice, servants, not masters, but servants of Christ, God does wish to be at work and that he would be doing the building. So that's what we see at the end. Apollos has his place. I had my place. But let's focus on the one who is something, the Lord who was at work by this. And what do you think of us then? We are fellow workers. We are co-workers. You're the field of God. Who's the one doing it all, though? God is the one who's building it. God's the one who's actually making it grow. What is the gradual? Oh, we've heard it a number of times now, haven't we? Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. It focuses on the Gentiles again, and today does seem like a day in this year, A, where Epiphany, which maybe had kind of been sidelined by the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, now has come back and has been of interest. Although it's very interesting to see it contrasted so much to kind of an Old Testament Israel focus. And maybe, I suppose you could see a hint of what is to come, as we well know, that the glory of the people of Israel was not received, and those whom the Lord enlightens, now glory in him. But the steadfast love of God is contrasted to all of the conditional promises and blessings and curses given in the Old Testament. So maybe that does lead us well into our gospel reading that's going to push us past all the details, all the external keepings of any given commandment of God toward the heart as a source of all of the particular works that we might do or not do. The verse is Ephesians 5.2. Yeah, this is unusual. So this is not from any of our readings, as most of them have been so far. Walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a beautiful passage coming from Ephesians, talking about the life of Christians together. And certainly it drives home the point that I had mentioned before, that Christ and the justification that his blood have won for us and earned for us, his salvation is what leads to our good works. We love because he first loved us, to put it in John's language. Well, it does seem a little strange since it's not in any of the readings. I think this is a a very clear statement of the gospel, which is a nice contrast or balance to the rest of it, which could be quite heavy preaching of the law today. We will be in the Gospel reading for the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany as we look forward to Sunday morning with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, next. Then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Things above, that's the theme for this year's hymn sing at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The bridegroom soon will call us. Jerusalem the golden, wake awake for night is flying, and a whole bunch more. You don't want to miss it. Making the Case is Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. On the subject of worship, the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference includes three worship services and a hymn sing. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. The early bird registration fee is $140. That includes three meals. Attendance is limited. Find out more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 
223-8385, making the case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. We come now to the gospel reading for this coming Sunday, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard it said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So in all of these examples, uh, the Lord is sharpening something. And I really would like to start with something from the formula of Concord. This is our Lutheran Confessions, which talks about this passage very importantly. And so I think this would be helpful as we consider it. This is the formula of Concord, the solid declaration. That's the longer and more in-depth version. This is the fifth article on the law and the gospel and starting at paragraph 10. And it says this, merely preaching the law without Christ has two results. Either it makes proud people who imagine that they can fulfill the law by outward works, or it forces them utterly to despair. And therefore, Christ takes the law into his hands and explains it spiritually. And it cites this passage and also Romans 7. He reveals his wrath from heaven on all sinners and shows how great his wrath is. In this teaching, sinners are directed to the law, and from it they first learn to know their sins correctly, a confession that Moses could never wrestle out of them. For as the apostle testifies, even though Moses is read, the veil he put over his face is never lifted, so they cannot understand the law spiritually and what great things it requires of us and how severely it curses and condemns us because we cannot keep or fulfill it. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Christ's spirit must not only comfort, but also through the office of the law, convict the world concerning sin. 
In the New Testament, as the prophet says, he must do the work of another. He must reprove in order that he may afterward do his own work, which is rightly to comfort and to preach grace. And to this end, the Spirit was obtained for us through Christ and was sent. So notice we've mentioned that many things today are kind of trying to spiritualize, or that could be a a concern that instead of having any kind of coherent rule for this life, we're just trying to turn it into attitudes or something internal. There is a truth to that. But when we say the word spiritual, we mean by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is at work. And so what our confessions say, what we're saying about this is, this is what Christ does with his commandments when he brings the Holy Spirit to be at work in it. It's more than just reading them as a list of things to do. It's more than just reading them as a list of things that are forbidden, that people should be yelled at about. But it becomes, you know, what we Lutherans usually mean when we say preaching the law. It becomes something that accuses us, that exposes sin, that reveals, in fact, that even in our hearts, even if our actions were totally outwardly fine, what is in the heart has become wicked and therefore needs to be reproved and corrected and repented of and forgiven. Otherwise, nothing great is going to come from this at all. So we can learn to know our sins rightly and more deeply by looking at the law and by having the Holy Spirit at work in it, rather than what certainly the Pharisees are struggling with around him, despite their very persnicketiness about keeping all these commandments, especially the ones that the rabbis had added, but never seeing that it actually accuses them or convicts them of anything. So rather than being proud people on the one hand, or being despairing people of this is miserable, we ought to be people who see our sins rightly, who are corrected in our sins gladly, but above all, who know the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ so that we can be free to serve him without fear and and even to do some good in our life. So you want to discuss this in four parts divided into the subjects of murder and hatred, adultery, lust, divorce, and oaths. Yeah, so the first two definitely kind of parallel each other. And it may be helpful to remember last week is when Jesus says, I don't come to deny or abolish the law and the prophets, but I come to fulfill them. There's a way in which the Lord here is filling them up to make them very legal and very condemnatory. He is amplifying the law. He's not making them easier to keep. He is making it more difficult. In fact, the implication from this is that maybe I have not kept it. And the first two are are maybe the easiest to see in that. Murder, I think, is probably the commandment that if you take it at face value, is easiest to say, I've kept that one because I have not killed the person with my hands yet. And I would imagine most of our listeners have not killed anyone. God grant it. But here's where Jesus says, no. In fact, those who are angry, those who have hatred in their heart, those who are ridiculing and mocking their neighbor, they have committed it in their heart already. Now, we don't want to, to say that all sins are the same before us. Obviously, as I mentioned, it would be much better if people were not killing each other, even if maybe they wanted to sometimes. That is better to stop that from happening. And even Jesus says that later when he says, I suppose it'd be better for you to cut off all these members rather than have these things happen. So by no means are all sins before other men equal. Yet before God Nobody is getting away with anything, right? The Lord sees into the heart. So, so we cannot you know, be outwardly righteous in what we do 
in a way that the Lord will be pleased with it. He sees to the heart. So for those who are Christians, those who wish to be righteous, those who wish to, to keep their Lord's commands, as, as Psalm 118 says, it's got to be way more than just some kind of external keeping of the law. I think the accuser that the Lord has in mind here is is not even just your neighbor, although this is perfect good advice for your neighbor as well, but in fact, God himself. We'll come back to that. When he speaks about adultery, this is well known. This is something I think Christians are ridiculed for, but we should not be afraid of it. That sinful thoughts, sinful desires, sinful imaginations of the sixth commandment are also sins. That it's not simply a matter of not sleeping with another woman who's not your wife, but also having a pure heart and a chaste mind. So what the Lord says here about cutting off parts is quite astonishing related to that, because there may be a certain part that needs to be cut off. Although the part that we really ought to see here is the heart that needs to be cut out. Here's an indication, of course, that the Lord is, on the one hand, being hyperbolic with regard to our life here on earth, but on the other hand, being not hyperbolic at all when it comes to eternal salvation. In order to be righteous and be spared the damning nature of sin, one would have to get rid of yourself entirely. In other words, it is impossible that we would save ourselves by our good works. Therefore, we're in need of someone else who has not been mentioned by name in this section. When we get to the matter of divorce, here's where the Lord departs maybe from the commandments of God in the Torah and jumps to the rabbinical practices. We know that Moses gave this command for Israel, but the Lord rebukes it elsewhere also that we are not following just the expedient commands of this world, but before the Lord, he considers a marriage to be between one man and one woman, and that they should not be divorced. He does give an exception in this case, as many have noted, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, which implies that somebody would cheat on the other partner. In that case, a person is not considered an adulterer. And yet the force of this is by no means to carve out exceptions, just the opposite, right? To, in fact, exclude all the exceptions so that we will recognize our sin and repent of it. The last matter is about oaths, and uh, it uh, frustrates all of our attempts to divide up the world into different sections so that some of it doesn't fall under God's command and purview. We see that heaven, of course, is his domain, but the earth is his footstool. Even the place where the king sits is where the Lord is. So all of the places on the world are governed by the Lord. There's no place that we can hide away from him. And as a result, we ought to live honestly and openly rather than trying to keep things to ourselves, rather than trying to uh, let our words lose their value by living in technicalities. I think you see that common thread here is the technicality, the slipping of the law either by making it easier to keep or the changing of the law by adding extra rules that are easier to do that are kind of just formal rules, those we can keep, so that both the spirit and the actions of love are lost in all of this. This is what plagued the Jewish people at the time of Christ. It's what plagued the Roman church. It's what plagues every single human heart as it tries to justify itself, as it, as our confessions say, are either proud or driven to despair. And in all of this, then, something is missing 
and the something is Christ Jesus, our Savior. And that is very much what the Lord is preaching this sermon for, is to take all of the proud and humble them, to take all of the despairing and say, you're right in part, but rather to raise this question and to have everyone asking it, well, who then can be saved? Is there any rescue? Is there some place where I can run for refuge? And of course, that is who Christ Jesus is. That's why he's come in the flesh, not to abolish anything, but to fulfill it and to fulfill it in our place to be our salvation. About 30 seconds on the hymn of the day, Songs of Thankfulness and Praise. The hymn of the day is, is is just a seasonal hymn. It really is a fine English epiphany hymn talking about Christ being manifest. It's a nice balance to all of this difficult look into our hearts with God's law to expose us, uh, to call us to repentance, to see also how honest the Lord expects us to be with ourselves and with our neighbor. If one were to add another hymn, I might suggest 557, Seek Where You May to find a way, which is definitely what we're led to by this law of God, that we would look outside of ourselves for salvation. Christ Jesus is the one that we can seek in whom we find salvation, righteousness, redemption. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll have Dr. Stephen Parks answer the question, did St. Augustine teach that the Roman Catholic Church had the authority to determine the canon of Scripture. And we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. When God looks into your heart with the lens of his law, he does see murder, hatred, lust, all of those things. He looks into the heart of his son, Jesus Christ, and sees none of them. And that righteousness in Christ avails for you. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at melhs.org, jkrause at melhs.org.